Hey listeners, before we get to the conversation, I just wanted to tell you a bit about the services and solutions that Getting Smart offers. Did you know that we collaborate with and advocate for impact-oriented partners who are committed to accelerating the future of teaching, leading, and learning? Our strategic solutions are tailored to best support each partner in achieving their goals and helping leaders know what to do next. Working with our vast network of resources and partners, we design informed strategic solutions that last. Whether your organization needs support with learning design and coaching, strategy, professional learning, media, communication and marketing, or are looking to build your next campaign, we are here to help. If you're interested in learning more about our services and working with our team, email jessica at gettingsmart.com or visit gettingsmart.com slash what we do. Any, what is the extended mind? Extended mind. So, well, maybe I'll tell a little story about how I came across the idea of the extended mind because it's it's not mine. It's an idea that I borrowed from two philosophers. So I had been researching and writing about the science of learning for a number of years and intending to write a book on that. And I wasn't finding a big idea that pulled together all the strands of research that I was finding so interesting until I read an article from a philosophy journal by Andy Clark and David Chalmers, two philosophers. Uh, And the first line of their article was, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? And I really liked that question. I thought it was interesting and provocative. And their answer was even more interesting because they said, um, you know, as it, thinking does not, or the mind does not stop at the limits of the skull, as we might imagine, thinking and intelligence and the mind is actually spread, uh, you know, throughout our body below the neck, uh, throughout our surroundings and throughout our network of relationships with other people. And that seemed to me to be a much more expansive and much more accurate description of how thinking works than imagining that it happens just up here. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderhoek, and today I'm with Annie Murphy-Paul, the author of a great new book called The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Annie, um, if I think back five years ago to the brilliant blog, um, (laughs) I I just had a super brain crush on you, like uh, thousands of people did, as um, the leading writer in brain science, you on a weekly basis were pumping out um, what we thought were super important insights. So it, it was it was a bit of a, a left turn for a lot of us when um, you went off on this tangent. Uh, I, w- I was worried. I, I, the, the, there was a lot of us waiting with bated breath for the book called Brilliant. I know. We, I thought, know. we thought you would unlock the secrets of the brain. And so what an interesting... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Interesting turn for you and us. Yeah, it's been quite a journey, right? Oh, it really has. Because I did intend to write a book about the science of learning called Brilliant, and I tried to do that really hard for a number of years. And the problem for me was that I wanted to say something new and fresh about the science of learning, uh, and I wanted—I do need as a writer that big idea that feels to me transformative of the way that we we think about things and the way we see things. And what I was finding in uh, writing about the science of learning, as interesting as it is, 
was that what I had was a kind of collection of techniques, you know, and many of them are very effective, you know, spaced learning and retrieval practice and those kinds of things. But I was looking for something really, as I say, transformative. And I found it in the extended mind, which as you say, was kind of a left turn because I had been focusing on the brain and how it learns. And this idea is all about how the brain is not the be all end all of thinking and learning. So it was, um, it was a, a departure, I guess, from what I'd been, I'd been thinking about and writing about, but uh, ultimately to me, it was the freshest and most exciting thing that I could put out there. Any, um, like David McCraney, uh, a couple of us uh, thought this might be a little woo-woo when, uh, <laughs> when we picked up our, our yeah. first copy, but yeah. it is, um, it's such an important book. And I, I just love the, uh, the three sections. And I, I want to walk through the, the three clusters of insights. And, and in each of those, uh, I want to invite you to, to, um, to talk with learning leaders, whether they're at home or in a, leading a school or a, a learning organization um, and see if we can tease out some of the, the lessons and implications. Um, I think my, my top level observation is that schools and other learning organizations are typically not very good at asking learners to think with their bodies mm -hmm. and be conscious of their surrounding Mm -hmm. or their colleagues. They, they, and, and in fact, they may actually block all three of those, right? Uh, they, yes. they may physically inhibit you by policy or practice to think with your body, um, to, to think about and in surround uh, and with your, with your colleagues. And um, so I want to dive into those. The, the first section is thinking with our bodies. You call that embodied... Um, cognition uh, mm -hmm. but give us an, an overview of sort of why and how we think with our bodies sure tom and i do really want to uh, affirm your point that you made that conventionally or traditionally education has been very brain bound it's been very focused on on the brain on enhancing the abilities of the brain but not necessarily not necessarily bringing in these other Extraneural, you know, outside the brain resources. And one of the most powerful of those is the body. And in the book, I write about three particular ways that the body participates in the thinking process. And that is physical activity, um, gesture, and interoception, which is a kind of fancy word for the, uh, the internal sensations that we, uh, this flow of internal sensations that is always with us, but that we often don't tune into. Um, maybe I'll talk about that one first. I mean, interoception is kind of another way of talking about gut feelings. The fact that there are uh, insights and knowledge and wisdom that we have access to, but really only through the body, not through conscious um, cogitation. So, um, and yet, as we've been saying about conventional schooling, um, being in tune with your internal signals and and uh, sensations is not something that we traditionally uh, encourage students to do or teach them how to do in, in schools. And there are some simple ways to uh, get kids to become more attuned to those internal sensations. For example, um, a, a mindfulness meditation practice known as the body scan, where you're encouraged to pay 
curious, open-minded, uh, non-judgmental attention to all those internal signals that are, are um, arising within. And then it can also be a very useful practice to learn how to label those internal sensations, to give a name to them. And it's it's the more granular and uh, those labels are and the, the greater the number of labels we can come up with, the more effective that practice is for reducing um, anxiety, for bringing down the level of physiological arousal. You know, I think um, traditional schooling has often, uh, as we said, focused so much on the brain that it's like we, uh, students are expected to quash or suppress those internal sensations when really they can be such a useful guide. Um, and that that would be one major way that I think that schools could put the extended yeah. mind to uh, use. Well, let me interrupt there and um, and see if you're um, as hopeful about the, the introduction of, of mindfulness and wellness mm -hmm. practices that we're seeing <laughs> so broadly in in part because of the pandemic but i th yeah. this may be a a beneficial outcome of this this uh natural disaster that we're living through of just mm -hmm. more schools paying more attention to to mindfulness and wellness do you do you see that as a as a related benefit you're right that there i do see mindfulness increasingly becoming a part of the curriculum at more and more schools no. and i do think that as long as that mindfulness is that part of that is oriented around the body and not just about, right. you know, controlling or managing one's thoughts. I think that could be a really positive silver lining of the pandemic. Yes. Annie, one, one thing we don't really historically teach in school is decision-making. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't think we help learners make very good decisions, both about themselves or about their own learning. And um, a Tim Ferriss podcast uh, last week went into some detail of, of, uh, about the fact that it's really important to sort of check in with your yourself and your body when you're when you're thinking about making a decision, uh, so that you fully consider um, how you feel about um, about taking a, a next step. I, I assume mm -hmm. you think that's really important to becoming more in tune with. How you're feeling as a, a whole self when you're considering uh, personal next steps. I do, I do. And I think it is important to re remember that the body doesn't always steer us right, you know, that our intuitions and our yes. gut feelings are not always accurate, but they can give us more information than we have access yeah. to consciously. So I write in the book about uh, the value of, of keeping an interoceptive journal, you know, um, noting, as we were saying, noticing, labeling, and actually recording those internal signals and writing a bit about how that relates to a decision that you're making. And then you can yeah. go back and check and see if your body was kind of steering you in the right direction. Annie, are, uh, do I have this right that you're a, a bit of a cyclist? You you get out and <laughs> ride with some frequency? I do, I do. Exercise and movement, um, what's the connection to, to the, the mind? Um, I, I guess th there's a basic one just in terms of, of well-being that exercise really can yes. benefit um, brain function, but what, what else is there? Yeah, there's, there's so much actually. I mean, one thing is that 
human beings really did not evolve to to stay still to the the young of the species especially and it actually yeah. absorbs it takes up a fair amount of cognitive bandwidth of of mental resources to inhibit the um the natural urge to want to move so when students are expected to stay still there's a part of their brain that's managing that activity that can then be used for their their academic work so um, there's a kind of um, activity permissive approach to to having kids in a classroom where it's it's not disruptive. It's not you know it's not kids um, yeah. running around, but they're able to move their bodies in more subtle ways that can um, free up that mental bandwidth that would otherwise be used to inhibit movement. Annie, I, I told you I'm spending a lot of time with my grandkids these days, mm -hmm. and the, my six year old granddaughter said, "Papa." I do math better standing up. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I hope my teacher lets me stand up when we do math. So I just, I love the fact that a six-year-old would have that. That insight, that yeah. Sort of efficacy of, of understanding how in a particular domain um, she thinks um, and creates best, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And yeah, so how, how, to, how to create more learning environments where we invite young people um, to be comfortable, I think that means a combination of high and low and hard and soft seating, but but it also has something mm -hmm. to do with the spaces that we create, right? Absolutely, yeah. And the way we allow kids to, or encourage kids to spend their time, you know, I mean, there, there was a move, unfortunately, in the last few decades away from recess and towards more seat time, you know, um, more sitting and, and learning, which is actually counterproductive because, you know, our ability to pay attention, to, to pay attention, to be vigilant uh, is, is limited. And it's refreshed when we get to, uh, you know, engage in some physical activity and then return to the classroom, which of course is ex exactly what recess is all about. And so that's kind of an old fashioned thing that I think we need to, to remember the value of. So any um, your the second section of your book is about thinking um, with our surroundings. Uh, mm -hmm. You called it situated cognition. Um, mm -hmm. I have to admit that this made me stand up and cheer because mm -hmm. uh, we, we wrote a book called The Power of Place and we just, um, our whole team really um, believes deeply in um, the connection between place and identity development, that introducing learners um, to their places in a full and uh, profound way really can help um, shape who we become as, um, as young people. So I love this section of the book. I love that fact that you, you looked at natural surroundings, um, built surroundings, and then sort of conceptual, the life of ideas. So let's yeah. talk about natural and, and built environments first. Um, yeah. What would you learn there? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think we all have an intuition that not uh, being in nature is good for us. We have a pleasant feeling when we're in nature, and we may feel relaxed when we're in nature. I was really interested to learn about sort of the mechanisms behind that. That human beings evolved in nature in the outdoors, and so the kind of information that we encounter in nature is very easy for our brains to process. It's very effortless. We our attention is kind of effortlessly diverted here and there without the very hard-edged kind of concentration that we have to bring to our academic work or our, our workplace uh, duties. 
And so it's really the fastest and easiest and most effective way to restore our attentional capacities, which get, get drained very quickly, you know, in our in classrooms and in the office. What about built environments? What what advice, uh, what lessons did you, did you draw on how, how we ought to be creating spaces, particularly learning spaces? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, there I was very interested to learn about the research on um, how the objects and the cues that we see around us in a built setting uh, prime certain identities and position us to think well um, within certain identities. Like, you know, we all have many identities. We may be students, we may be workers, we may be um, parents, we may be siblings, you know, but when we're in a, a school setting, we want to have that identity of, of scholar or student foremost. And so the things we see around us, literally the material objects we see around us can prime that sort of orientation. And so, and in particular, cues of identity, you know, cues of who we are, what's important to us, what we value uh, are important to have around us. And also cues of belonging, cues that remind us uh, that we're part of a valued group. And so I, it's my hope that every student when they're seated in their classroom can look around and see cues of identity and cues of belonging reflected back at them. Annie, there seems to be some evidence that in learning environments that if, if you have the potential, at least periodically to connect with the, the world uh, that might be looking out a window, it might be a, a, a vista where you can change the focus, um, where you can see the the surround that there's some benefit to that. Um, any thoughts on that? On, on having sort of a, a, a room with a view? <laughs> yeah, a room with a view, uh -huh. right? It's, a room with a view, yeah. It's not yeah. just a luxury, that it, there's, there's really some benefit to, to cognition and learning. Yes, yes, because we can't always, as much as we would like to, we can't always take a long walk in the woods when uh, we need our attention restored. But interestingly, Research shows that micro restorative breaks, that's the word that psychologists use, uh, of, of looking out a window for as little as, as 40 seconds can really refresh and reset our attentional capacity. So it, it is important to, um, to, at the very least, provide students with, with scenes of green, you know, or to bring those motifs of nature even inside into the classroom with, with uh, plants and, and greenery inside. Let's jump to the, the third in the last section of the book. It's on thinking um, with our relationships, mm -hmm. distributed cognition. This was mm -hmm. a really powerful section that talked about um, experts, peers, and groups. Um, how about experts first? Uh, how can and should experts uh, provoke our learning and development? Yeah, and this was interesting to me too, because our whole, all of our systems of education and training and all of that are based on this model of experts teaching novices, right? But we don't often grapple with the fact that experts are sometimes less than ideal teachers for novices precisely by virtue of being experts. You know, they have all this knowledge that's become so familiar and so practiced that it's become automatized. And they actually are not even really aware of how they do what they do. So then when they go to explain or um, describe their expertise to novices, they leave a lot of stuff out and that can leave 
novices feeling, beginners feeling quite frustrated and confused. So there's some strategies that I write about in that chapter uh, that can help experts become more legible models for novices, like breaking down uh, their expertise into steps and even micro steps um, or presenting uh, their knowledge and in functional terms. In other words, this is how you use this information, not just these broad level categories that make sense to an expert, but not so much to, uh, to the beginner. Uh, peers can be really important, um, both to create a sense of belonging, um, but also sustained relationships. And, um, and I think more peer learning happens uh, in productive environments than we may have known about in the past. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, there's, there's um, a bias, I think, that we bring to us to social activity. We think of social life as being distinct from and in some ways almost opposed to academic life. Like, okay, kids, you can you can chatter at lunchtime or recess, but when we come into the classroom, we're serious and we're we're not talking to our neighbors, you know. But human beings are fundamentally social creatures and we're social all the time. You know, we don't turn that off. So the the real trick is to harness that the, our powerful social brains in the service of learning. And there's all kinds of cognitive activity that gets stimulated and activated by social activity that really remains dormant when we're just thinking by ourselves. So I really think social activities like storytelling and debating and teaching other people as much as possible, those should be incorporated into the classroom. And most schools are still focused on individual learning and individual grades and um, working in a group is often prohibited, not, not even right. uh, in, encouraged, right? And I think you, right. you did a beautiful, um, did a beautiful section in here about the, the potential for collective intelligence of mm -hmm. a group can be smarter than uh, a, an individual contribution. Uh, I think a lot of workplaces are coming to that conclusion, but we still don't create learning environments that tap into collective uh, intelligence, do we? No, no. And you're right. You're so right. I mean, how often do we work in teams, you know, in the workplace? And yet we never learned how to do that as students. Um, and so, and as a result, I think a lot of students, um, you know, you encounter a lot of resistance and a lot of reluctance to, to engaging in group work among students. And I think in part, that's because our practices of thinking and learning are so individualistic that when we try to bring them into a group, they just they just don't work. We actually need to develop and practice entirely new protocols of thinking together and better to learn that in school, you know, because we're going to need those skills for the rest of our lives. Martin uh, uh, Reeves recently wrote a book called The Imagination Machine, which is uh, mm. really terrific. He was on about a month ago. Martin talks about collective imagination in a way that I think was was really attractive to me. When I think about the work of education leaders, for example, of taking some of the principles that you've outlined in your book and bringing them into their environment and re-expressing learning goals and reimagining learning experiences, you really have to you have to help a community reimagine hmm. uh, what's possible. So that hmm. I, for me, it's an interesting example of collective intelligence. It's collective imagination of helping a community imagine that things could be different and, and better. Um, is that 
Sound like an application of this principle? Uh, that's beautiful. I had not heard about that, but I, I, I find myself wondering immediately how how would you uh, how would one how would a group um, create the conditions under which collaborative or co or collective imagining could happen? Um, that's that's really a lovely idea. We we've been um, Mason, our producer, just finished uh, a smart sprint with a group of people thinking about um, shared vision and, and our sense of helping a group come to a shared vision is really this act of collective imagination and um, mm. it, we think it's a great example of this collective intelligence that mm -hmm. uh, that you called out and uh, again we we bar this in school instead of uh, promoting it so mm -hmm. um, mm. th this section I also want to just note the importance of advisors and a, a sustained relationship with an adult mentor mm -hmm. or advisor and how important that relationship can be to learning mm -hmm. and development Mm -hmm, Any thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, well, the, what comes to mind there is, um, again, this idea of belonging. You know, um, I think uh, human beings, to go back to what we were saying earlier, are so social, are so focused on their place in a group. And when we don't feel that we belong, uh, a big chunk of our mind minds gets devoted to, you know, how can I feel a sense of belonging or feeling hypervigilant about threats and, you know, threats to one's belonging. And I think one of the most powerful ways to make someone, to help someone feel a sense of belonging is that kind of bond with, um, with a teacher, with an advisor. And uh, that's a real welcome into the community that I think is, is so important. Well, your, your book is such a great reminder for advisors to start by checking in with a person on how are you doing? How are you feeling? Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. And, and being conscious of the surround. Is it a place that is, um, feels safe, that creates a sense of, uh, belonging, um, and yes. then invites these, um, peer relationships, um, into learning experiences are just great advice for learning leaders. Thank you, We're Tom. Yeah, there's really so much more than <laughs> to learning and thinking than just the brain. There is. You, uh, it's so fun to reconnect because uh, you've been on such an interesting journey. We're, we're <laughs> talking to Annie Murphy-Paul. She's the author of The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Um, I, I'd love to know if, if uh, there's a, another person or two that provoked your thinking and growth uh, over the last two years. Who, who else would you... Uh, give a shout out to that has helped you think um, differently and better about how humans develop. Yes, yes. Well, one uh, name that I'll mention is I'm sure familiar to your listeners, and that is Dan Willingham, the uh, cognitive scientist at UVA who wrote the wonderful book, Why Don't Students Like School? And he has a, a new book coming out next year that I'm just so excited for. But what Dan's work really showed me was, you know, he says in, in uh, he writes in why don't students like school? He says the brain didn't really evolve to think, you know, it evolved to uh, activate, you know, remembered patterns of behavior. Doing abstract conceptual thinking is really hard for the, for the human brain. And uh, that really became part of the basis of what, of my argument in the extended mind, which is the brain it, on its own is a quite limited and idiosyncratic kind of organ um, that's bounded by its, its status as a, as a biological organ, as an evolved organ, and it needs help. You know, it can't do it all on its own. 
And we really don't do ourselves any favors when we cut ourselves off or cut our students off from these external sources of, um, of intelligence, of, of, of thinking power. Um, and when we try to just sit there and do it all with our brain. So it was really Dan's uh, work that helped me understand how quirky and idiosyncratic the brain is and how much it needs help if it's gonna do all that we ask it to do these days. All right, let's wrap with a couple of questions. We call this one-to-one. What's, uh, what's one thing that's next for you? How, how are you going to extend this work? Mm-hmm. Well, one theme that I really only got to touch on in this book is something I call extension inequality. And that's um, the fact that once you start realizing that intelligence is not some kind of lump of stuff that's inside the brain, but is really this dynamic assemblage of of, um, uh, of stuff, you know, the raw materials drawn from our environment, it just starts to seem so obvious that, um, you know, we're, we're evaluating and ranking and judging people based on, uh, on the notion that, that it's all inside their heads when really so much of what people are able to do depends on the access they have to resources outside their heads. And so, uh, I would really like to do more with that idea of extension inequality and focusing people on the importance of having rich and um, accessible materials for thinking with, rather than just believing that it all happens inside the head. I love that. Um, Here's two insights that I uh, gleaned from reading your book and and tell me if you'd add a a third one, but Mm. the two that I gleaned were, I think now more than ever, we have to um, re-evaluate how we think about learning goals and how Mm -hmm. as communities we express our aspirations for uh, learning and development. And then closely related to that, we have to rethink the learner experience um, uh, and be more uh, conscious of, of, as you put it, um, body surrounding and, and relationships. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what would you add to that? Mm-hmm. I really am persuaded that the metaphors we use to understand ourselves and our thinking are really important. And I, I see everywhere now these two metaphors that are so common, the brain as computer and the brain as muscle. And both of those have their uses, um, but I think they're limit, They're ultimately very limiting. And I propose another um, metaphor in my own book, the brain as magpie, which is the magpie is this bird that uh, plucks, you know, bits from its environment and weaves them into its nest. And that to me was, um, a more apt metaphor for how the brain works. You know, the brain is still, of course, the brain is still central to thinking, but it doesn't do it all on its own. It's really drawing from its environment. And that to me, um, could, is a potentially transformative way of thinking about the brain. Uh, I love that. Um, anywhere can people go to learn more about you and your book? So I have a website, it's www.anniemurphypaul.com. And I'm also really active on Twitter and I love to converse with people there. My handle is at Annie Murphy Paul. If you go to at Annie Murphy Paul, you will find some great uh, Twitter streams um, where you've, you've uh, doled out uh, a wisdom in, in series. So <laughs> Annie, what a treat to reconnect. Um, we'd love... The extended mind, the power of thinking outside the brain. Uh, I think it'd be useful for parents. Um, it's a must for 
teachers and education leaders. Uh, everybody ought to get a copy of it. Um, Annie, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Tom. It was great talking with you. Uh, this podcast is made possible by uh, our the whole staff at Getting Smart, but especially our producer, Mason Pasha. Uh, keep learning and keep innovating for equity. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.